Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. choked up by that than I expected to. It's been my plan to play this all week long, and we're really not at the point where we can ring them bells, but we're so close. I actually almost changed it to Just One Victory by Todd Rundgren, but we're very close right now. That's the I'm With Her version of Ring Them Bells, the Bob Dylan song. Um, also makes you think of VE Day when the bells of England rang at last. So... But that's not what this show is about. This is the nose. We're going to do culture. We're going to do culture here, even as uh, craziness unfolds all around us. Hopeful craziness this time. And we are pleased to have with us today Rebecca Castellani, uh, who handles social media marketing and event planning for Quiet Corner Communications. She joins us via the miracle of Skype. Uh, David Edelstein is America's greatest living film critic and many other things besides. But that will do for today. Uh, And later in the show, we've all been watching um, Queen's Gambit. Uh, a 37 years in the making adaptation of a Walter Tevis novel uh, that contains some terrific performances and just kind of a riveting concept, which we'll tell you more about. Uh, we'll also uh, talk a little bit about John Mulaney and the way in which Mulaney, a former writer at Saturday Night Live and now a stand-up comedian and a lot of other things, has kind of returned 
as its savior uh, and is able to kind of pull the show out of some of the doldrums that I at least think that it's facing right now. But for starters, uh, we're going to talk. Well, actually, Kat, let's just play the clip. We're going to talk about this guy. You said you wanted to know how to get Capone. Do you really want to get him? You see what I'm saying? What are you prepared to do? Everything within the law. And then what are you prepared to do? If you open the ball on these people, Mr. Nash, you must be prepared to go all the way. Because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. You want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's how you get Capone. All right. So uh, Sean Connery, of course, uh, left us uh, in the midst of all this craziness. He was 90 years old, which I didn't entirely understand until the obits ran. Uh, didn't seem possible. Uh, he died in his sleep last Saturday or possibly late last Friday. Um, so I think we should go to the film critic first on this. Uh, I, I don't know even sort of how we start the conversation about Connery. He is both James Bond in some of those movies, as our friends at Slate Culture Gabfest found this week, are kind of hard to watch now. They their value <gasps> sets don't really play all that well. Yeah. Um, but you know, he's a lot of other things besides. So I don't know, David. When you start thinking, started thinking last Saturday about Connery, where did your thoughts first go? <laughs> They're not hard to watch for some of us, but yeah. you know, uh, um, I-, I thought that what. Uh, I think Sean Connery is interesting, uh, fascinating to me because he was always two things. And as Bond, those things were hard to reconcile, but they were they were magical. He was um, a ruffian and he was a snob. He was an enforcer and he was a bandit, a bandit chief. Uh, he was insolent, yet he could behave himself on formal occasions. That... Um, that toasty Scottish brogue of his removed any hint of, of upper-class English twittiness. Uh, yet you could imagine him at a men's club, you know, smoking a pipe. You could imagine him, uh, uh, you could imagine him tasting wine and knowing what part of the vineyard it was from, and at the same time having no patience with wine snobs. He was, he, he, in, in other words, he, he made no sense, no literal sense. It would be hard to imagine someone like that in the flesh. And yet that is why he came to personify a certain kind of beautiful, as Pauline Kael would say, pictorial heroism on screen. And, and he got, he got, he, he started out beautiful as a, a bodybuilder and uh, uh, who uh, apparently looked sensational in kilts and became more and once he lost the hair pieces and he he began to grow into his persona um he he was so much larger than anyone else on screen that i felt as if the camera was drawn to him as if as if uh, a, a compass to magnetic north um it, it just he and and his his centeredness his comfort with his appearance his comfort with his personality uh, he had a lot of the things that make uh, an actor a star, a movie star. And uh, I only regret that I never saw him on stage or that I never saw him in some of the classic roles that I think he, I wish he'd played. I think he could have been 
the definitive James Tyrone in Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey into Night. That's a man mm. who is modeled on uh, uh, someone who played the Count of Monte Cristo for for you know twenty years on on the road, and and you know the people who have played uh, who played James Tyrone recently, you know Jack Lemmon or Jeremy Irons. I mean, consider Sean Connery versus Jeremy Irons. You know he's. Jeremy Irons is sort of pinched and ghoulish, whereas Sean Connery is open and has this hardiness, but also this vulnerability to go with it. Anyway, uh, that's what I thought. That's <laughs> All right. what I was thinking. So, yeah, I don't know, Rebecca, I know you have some very specific things that you want to talk about, too. There's, there's as David <laughs> was I? talking, uh, I was, as David was talking, I was also, you know, I was thinking about the character that Brad Pitt plays in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. You know, since he's a guy who can go up and actually literally work on your roof or something like that. And there's a way in which, I, as David was talking, I was thinking, that's the thing about Connery, you know, that, you know, he's obviously this super, he's Sir Sean Connery, he's the super elegant guy. But if you needed somebody to come over and, I don't know, restucco your house or something, you sort of feel like you would probably know how to do that and would be oh, even yeah. willing to do it. So, but anyway, well, yeah, he's run He's from with Fountain this. Bridge, Edinburgh, which is like one of the posher areas of Edinburgh. And I think, you know, for a lot of Scots, they would say that he was sort of a posh Scot. But for the rest of the world, you know, as David so eloquently put, he has this brogue that like, and this roguishness to him that I think made the rest of the world... I mean, obviously fall in love with him. For me, my relationship with Sean Connery is simply like the most timeless sex appeal from like the first time I saw him as James Bond to just on when he died on a Saturday, my family watched The Hunt for the Red October. And even in that, I'm like, yes, absolutely, Sean Connery, you can get it in any fashion. So that's really all I have to say about that. Yeah, I don't. I, I sort of wonder also. I mean, you just brought up one or two th- uh, pieces there. Actually, before I get to that, so Jonathan McPants is uh, slacking me. I read a thing that compared Connery to Cary Grant that they're both underrated because of their effortless coolness. Um, and and that's a weird comparison, David, because obviously they project very very different types. But there's some truth to that there too. You know that there's this sense that oh. He doesn't really have to act. He just kind of is. And that's probably not fair to either actor. No, it's not fair. But but of course, as has been said, the essence of style is the disappearance of style, is the fact that you don't notice style. Stylishness that presents itself as such looks like, I mean, in the context of James Bond, would look like foppishness like Pierce Brosnan, for example, right. uh, playing the role. And uh, no offense to Pierce Brosnan, who I thought was fine. But, you know, there is, yes, there's a lot of work. There's a lot of discipline, a lot of physical discipline, a lot of emotional centeredness that goes into projecting that kind of style. I think Cary Grant is a, is a really good, uh, is a good comparison. Um, insofar as Cary Grant also was, uh, although he played, uh, uh, kind of upper class characters, and uh, you know, f- well, his accent fell somewhere in the mid Atlantic between England and uh, <laughs> and the United States. But but he he also had a working class background. He also, uh, you know, underneath you could sense maybe there was even a bit of rough trade. Uh, we mm-hmm. we now know a little more about his personal life than we did. We that's not the case with Sean Connery. But I do think that there is. Uh, do you know what I mean by rough trade? I don't know personally. Yes, and I don't know trade, that you necessarily but... have to dot that I or cross that T. <laughs> <laughs> um, but mean, yes, to but, that point, but, though, but, he... but somebody who could who could also, like I said, be in a in a men's club. It's a 
it's an extraordinary thing. And we, we don't maybe realize not having grown up in, in Britain, um, the allure of that kind of thing. There are, there are actors who, uh, I mean, the, the idea of these people who are, who become knighted, who become aristocrats eventually just by virtue of having a certain kind of magnetism, a certain kind of class who weren't born to it, but who, but who earned it just in Connery's case, by virtue of discipline and charisma and beauty, Mm. beauty. Um, uh, That's a, that's a pretty amazing thing. Right. Rebecca, what were you going to say? If you didn't get distracted by the beauty. (laughs) Well, it's to all these points to sort of like, timelessness and beauty and almost this in, in moments genderless quality that allows Sean Connery's bond to remain interesting to me despite the fact that I I just recently tried I think it was Dr. No I tried to rewatch this is before Sean Connery passed away and I couldn't get through it because of some of the scenes and the writing I was like this is just not how I remember watching this as a young girl and it's hard to swallow now but Sean Connery still has that magnetism that kind of made me forget or at least sort of tune out some of the <laughs> terrible things that he was saying and I, I think that really does make him the consummate bond forever and always come on has anyone ever else sounded better saying pussy uh to win <laughs> yep. but that no. might be sort of part of the problem though um i mean that's both a, a blessing and a drawback um so uh i'm eager to change subjects right now so um I'm also wondering about sort of subsequent performances. I mean, there's sort of these kind of two mostly separate careers. You can look for some places of overlap, maybe. Uh, but these are, you know, there's there's the Bond stuff and then there's everything else. And I'm wondering if either one of you, um, I, I just, my son and I happened to watch Finding Forrester the other day, which is has, you know, in retrospect, closer retrospect, a little bit of a white savior narrative and stuff. But <laughs> it's actually a pretty cool movie. Uh, and it's a very nice, interesting, contained performance in the way that we think of Connery as being able to contain a lot and suggest a lot while he contains it. The one I want to go back to, and I'm probably going to get yelled at uh, by Edelstein for this. Uh, I'm, I'm, intri- I'm intrigued to see whether I would like, I didn't really like it the first time or two, Robin and Marion. Uh, which is Richard Lester and who, who I just admire to pieces. But um, but David, I don't know. Is there a particular non-Bond performance that you would shout out? Well, I think he was all ready to give a definitive performance in Robin and Marion. I think it's got one of the worst um, scripts ever committed to film uh, <laughs> with this revisionist. Uh, as I recall, it had a very revisionist take on uh, – on Robin Hood, that you know, he was just some illiterate peasant who uh, had been pushed into the role, into this heroic role, and that he that he couldn't really fully inhabit, and he he was made to seem sort of crude and stupid. I like the fact that Connery went there, that he mm. that he tried to do it, and I think he was magnificent looking and he moved beautifully. But I think The Untouchables is a is a great performance because it was. The first time, well, first of all, let's recognize that uh, David Mamet wrote that that yeah. speech, that we that famous speech, and mm. um, you know it's great when someone with Connery's cadences, even if they're not his Scottish cadences, even if he's trying to be Chicago Irish, um, you know when when he gets his mouth around dialogue like that, or some of the dialogue in the Man Who Would Be King, uh, you you really see uh, the poetry in him. You see how he could have how he could have you know, done done so much with with Shakespeare and so much on stage, but um, but I think that um, just letting the the 
the slight dissipation, the, the age, gravity, beginning to pull on this, you know, perfect specimen, you know, gave him uh, a vulnerability, gave, gave him both a, a fierceness, a strength, and a vulnerability that he'd never shown in film before. And that's why that performance, I think, is is immortal. I mean, we we will go back to that performance almost as often as we will to James Bond. The it's also you know I just there's two Robin Hoods on one set, which is kind of I must have been had some interesting conversations about that. I don't um, think they did. Yeah, probably I bet not. They had no interesting <laughs> conversations whatsoever. Well, possibly. By the way, uh, Connery, from all I mean, I've I've known a few people who've in, who interviewed him. He he was not. He was a pretty dull interview. Mm -hmm. I mean, people were very disappointed that he he was a businessman and yeah. he really had a a, a bottom line attitude towards a lot of what he does. Now, that may have been a certain kind of uh, humility, not wanting to appear as an artiste, because I'm sure he actually was, a, a, you know, he, he had a great deal of craft in, and, as I said, discipline in what he did. But, but he was, uh, um, I, I think there's a lot about his inner life that, that we'll, we'll never We'll never really see on this. Well, story. you and I both, we've interviewed a lot of actors and we know, you know, that's, you never know what you're going to get. And, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. so, um, so Rebecca, you're going to get the last, I will, I, I need to mention two things. One of them is that, uh, McPants wants me to mention The Rock, which is actually also a favorite uh, movie of my son's. So I'm now officially mentioning uh, The Rock, uh, and, which is a very, you know, he's sort great of, in, he's great in The Rock. He's, he really is well, good in The Rock. He's never, he's never not good. I mean, yeah. even in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, right. which, Made he hasn't. He, somebody pointed out he, he ha, what hasn't been. He wasn't in a lot of really great movies, but he was always really great no matter what he was doing. So Rebecca, you get to uh, have the last word. Uh, the floor is yours. I mean, the only other uh, Sean Connery things I've seen, and I'm sorry, this is embarrassing, is uh, obviously The Hunt for the Red October and uh, The Last Crusade, Indiana Jones. <laughs> That's it. So Which, maybe I need to go watch some more Sean Connery. I feel terrible. Well, it's been pointed out. He's actually very funny in that that uh, yeah. Indiana Jones movie. All right. So we have to. Sh speaking of uh, funny, we have to shift gears a little bit. So. Um, this is sort of, I didn't even think this was going to be a topic initially, uh, but we read an interesting piece uh, about um, the idea, anyway, that John Mulaney uh, has become kind of the go-to host for Saturday Night Live, that in a way, uh, Saturday Night Live, I, I feel as though this year the writing has not been good, the show's been in the doldrums, and then mm -hmm. Mulaney do does what he does a lot, which is he came in and host hosted, he's done it four times now, uh, and picked the whole thing up. Uh, let's hear just a little bit from his opening monologue last week. Now my Nana is going to vote, and she's 94 years old. And oh. Yes. Uh, do you applaud for things that you don't think are a good idea? Uh, listen, this might, this is, uh, this is my opinion. I'm not, I don't think it's going to be that popular. Why don't we shut the door so no one hears it? Uh, I, I don't think maybe she should vote. Uh, you know, you don't get to vote when you're 94 years old. You don't get to order for the table when you're about to leave the restaurant. <laughs> I'm sorry, that joke is ageist. That is wrong. It is wrong to say one age group is better than another. That would be like calling yourselves the greatest generation. If... Oh, oh, we fought the Nazis. Well, we're trying to fight the new Nazis if you'd get out of the way and stop voting for people you saw in between coin collector commercials. But listen. 
I personally don't even think that's the funniest thing in that monologue. He does the whole Andrew Cuomo thing earlier in the monologue that is just spectacular. Uh, and then at the end, he tells this story about his Nana walking, uh, walking around to the car. And she says, I used to be known as whatever my name is. And now uh, people just call me John Mulaney's uh, grandmother. And I want you to know that if you weren't my grandson, I wouldn't even know who you are, uh, <laughs> which I thought was uh, just tremendous, um, tremendous all around here. So, uh, Rebecca, let's talk a little bit about M Mulaney. There's sort of a way in which, you know, not with a huge kind of explosive landing on the scene quality, but just sort of gradual accretion. No. Oh, I have to say one other thing, before, which is that uh, doing deep research for this segment, I discovered that, <laughs> that John Mulaney's grandmother mother, his Nana, and Seth Meyers' mother were in a production, uh, it was a hospital benefit production directed by the young and apparently needing a gig, Tommy Toon. It was called Pills a Poppin'. It was in Marblehead, Massachusetts. <laughs> uh, and it, according to John Mulaney, saved the hospital. So as he put it, it so it's no laughing matter. Uh, but that's sort of a weird thing. Anyway, there's a way, I, you know, he kind of has grown on us, I think, Rebecca, or maybe that's just me. Yeah, I mean, I've always kind of felt like Mulaney has been there, but crept into my consciousness more and more as the years go by. And I obviously think SNL has been, you know, the launch pad for most people getting to know him. But he's had, you know, fantastic stand-up specials for years now. I just think there's something unique about his approach to comedy. He's got this gentlemanly quality to him. He's not clean. He's not necessarily, you know, unproblematic, but he is never punching down. He's not, you know, I have problems with comedians like Louis C.K. I just find that, you know, it comes down to a certain like degree of taste. And Mulaney always has this class and taste to his jokes. He's incredibly funny, incredibly intelligent with the way he crafts his jokes and weaves them together. It's approachable. It's fun. It's just, it's it's different for me from a lot of other comedians. And I just think there's an intelligence and, a, and again, this like old school gentlemanliness to him that I just don't think anybody else is really delivering on the scene. And he's so weird, too. I mean, he's just a genuinely weird dude. And I really appreciate that. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, Rebecca, I'll just stay with us for a second. He also seems to have like a lot of projects going all the time that yeah. are not just those things. Uh, I made everybody watch this, uh, you know, kind of Marlo Thomas, free to be you and me send up. He did called John Mulaney and the sack, sack lunch kids. Uh, and uh, there's also this tremendous thing that he and a few other people put together for documentary now that is the send up of a Sondheim cast album um wow. and it's uh i think it's called something like a original cast album or something but it's it's basically it's it's a send-up well david would know it's a it's the penny a send up of the penny documentary Baker. about the making of company right uh, it's the penny Baker that one, was yeah. uh, the recording of company great right. documentary um yes it's hilarious so david actually well let's go to you right now so Mulaney really kind of wasn't on your radar screen you're too busy watching all these movies uh, most of which he's not in uh, all of which he's not in so uh so we, we made you learn about him what did you, what did you come up with i think he's somebody who gets better the more you see him uh i think you know my first my first feeling was what's the big deal and a lot of his material it's fascinating to me because he he's really surprising. A lot of his material seems very obvious and he'll start things and you'll groan and then he'll hit you with some, uh, I think as Rebecca said, very weird out of, out of nowhere <laughs> kind of curveball. Um, I, I think, and, and I know this is a delicate territory, but, but he's, he's made jokes of it for his entire career in one form or another. His affect is extremely gay. 
and uh, he has made a joke that he makes jokes that you know, seventy five percent of him was was gay when you know they sent him off when God sent him or the angels sent him off into the world. They made him seventy five percent gay, and they wait, 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 call him back, call him back. We forgot the, but uh, <laughs> but he 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 has those mannerisms, he has those intonations, and he is constantly talking about his wife. The girl he's dating, he's constantly saying, "No, I'm not gay." He's constantly trying to, in in the way of this sort of Catholic boy, as he as he also talks about, who grew up in a in a in a um, an open but nonetheless very religious and and culturally Catholic home, um, to kind of keep some of his natural instincts under wraps. His his elements of his temperament. I don't, there are mysteries of biology, of, you know, of, uh, of chemistry, of neurochemistry that, that I don't understand, but he seems somebody who, um, you know, there, there's a lot that isn't really reconciled in his, in his persona that is actually very fertile territory for him to mine. I just think he's not a toxic male, and it's so shocking oh. to see that now that well, we're just like, well, it must be something that's else. Such an easy, that's such an easy label. I mean, he, he, yes, he's not, yes, because, no, he isn't a toxic male, and he's in a culture of toxic males, yeah. obviously, in comedy, and, uh, and, and he can't go there. He can't go there. He tries sometimes. He sticks a little toe into it. And he says, no, nah, that's not me, you know, or, or, or he'll, he'll, he'll have some redeeming out of left field insight that will, that will dissipate, you know, the, the, the creepiness of whatever it is that he's just said. Yeah. You I know, Rebecca, I, I, you, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think he's just the answer to all the comedians that get all whiny when they get canceled for something and say, oh, well, you know, we can't laugh at anything anymore. It's like he's able to give tasteful jokes that are still intelligent. It's It, it doesn't have to always be this mockery comedy that I feel like, you know, I think about Joe Rogan and people like that. It just it isn't it's punching down and he's just giving an alternative to the comedy world that I can understand how people kind of react to it. Like, well, he's weird. He is, why is he gay? Is he straight? I mean, I just think it's so different from what we're getting that I'm not surprised that a lot of people have that reaction when they well, first Rebecca, started. What he said, what he said, what was just played was not tasteful. I mean, that was actually, no, and I'm yeah. not saying he's he tasteful, was, he but I'm saying, saying you know, not. granny, granny really shouldn't have, shouldn't, you know, she was, and, and it was ageist and, it, and, and yeah. I thought it was kind of awful. And then he saved it with by bringing in the greatest generation and the arrogance. Right. Of, right. Of, but of that's smart joke writing. Our society. And that's an but but I don't think I don't I don't want to see him as as, you know, as a tasteful. I think he's I think he can be right up to the line, just not in the line that the quote unquote toxic male comics are. Right. I, Rebecca, I, I think you guys are both kind of saying the same thing, which is that, you know, I mean, if you're going to be a pretty good comedian, you're going to have to get dark sometimes. You're going to have to get transgressive sometimes. But um, I think what I hear you saying, Rebecca, is that Bellini manages to sort of put it all in, you know, on a nice downy little piece of cotton and then put it in a Tiffany gift box for us. So that so, yeah, you can actually make a joke about his grandmother's mortality and somehow or other it comes off. There's also a great little thing not to spoil it at the end of that monologue where he He's walking around to her car, and he goes, it's sort of a gray-brown car. It's not even a brand. I think the government gave it to her. <laughs> just, you know, there's – Rebecca, I think we let him get away with stuff because of yeah. who he is. I think yeah, we, we I, also I, let I, him get away with – we also let him get away with the fact that <clears throat> he wasn't really – he was a Saturday Night Live writer, and he wasn't – 
I mean, he's still there's still something about him that's like, I'm on stage. I'm I'm performing. Right, I mean, right. He, I have a whole thing about the writer, but I did say Rebecca. So Rebecca, oh, I want to hear. Sh- I want to hear what you said. <laughs> uh, no, I, I lost my train of thought. But uh, I think that he. I don't know. I, I just think that there's a redeemable. He gets to redeem some of the things that in other people's hands are irredeemable because of his how likable he is and how weird he is and how self-deprecating he is. Uh, it's just it's non-threatening comedy, and and I do find the older I get, I find a lot of this sort of like bullheaded comedy aggressive and and not just deeply unfunny. And Mulaney gets around that. He gets around the inherent idea that comedy is making fun of things in a way that might be uncomfortable, and he delivers it in a way that doesn't make you feel uncomfortable. All right, we have to take a break right now. I will just do, I'll do an early uh, recommendation. If you can find on YouTube, there's sort of a montage uh, of Mulaney's guest appearances on uh, Seth Meyers where he, they just go through one story, one bit he does after another, and they're all pretty spectacular, uh, including the story about his Nana and Seth's mother. All right, we've got to take a break here. We'll be back with more of David Edelstein and Rebecca Castellani. We'll be talking about Queen's Gambit. All right, uh, we are back. Um, this series, uh, the limited series uh, on Netflix, The Queen's Gambit, is an adaptation of a Walter Tevis novel from 1983. I believe there's sort of been, you know, some some people attached to uh, Walter Tevis' Queen's Gambit project for a long time. It's uh, finally being made by a director named Scott Frank, who also wrote Out of Sight, from which our particular theme song comes, and for which he was nominated for an Oscar. Uh, it is the story uh, of an orphaned, a girl uh, growing up in an orphanage uh, and discovering uh, her incredible chess gifts, uh, gifts profound enough and exalted enough to take her onto the international stage. But she is also a very damaged unit from everything that has happened to her. She has massive substance abuse issues, uh, problems with intimacy. Um, And so let's just uh, hear a little clip from the very beginning uh, episode. You're going to hear the young uh, Isla, is that how you say Isla Johnston? Uh, As the, as the, young Beth Harmon. Uh, I'm going to have David t- tell us a little bit more about the actress playing her as an adult. And Bill Camp, an actor who can do no wrong, is Mr. Scheibel. Is that whiskey? Mm-hmm. Yes. Don't tell. I won't. Modern chess openings? It's the best book for you. It will tell you all you want to know. You'll need to learn chess notation before you can read it. The names of the squares. I'll teach you now. Am I good enough now? How old are you? Nine. Nine years old. I'll be ten in November. Tell you the truth of a child. You're astounding. 
So Camp, I should say, plays the janitor who's down in the boiler room uh, of uh, of this orphanage. Uh, and it turns out, uh, rather than being a sinister presence down there in the boiler room, having these quiet visits <laughs> with, with this very young girl, all he wants to do is teach her how to play chess. Uh, and he does. He gets her started. Um, but, you know, David, uh, because I don't watch uh, as many movies as you do, uh, the person that I, I'm completely unfamiliar with actually is the person who plays the adult Beth Harmon, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy. So David Edelstein, tell us uh, about this actor. You you know her work, I think, pretty well. Well, uh, we don't, I don't know, our critics, are we allowed to, I, I never know if I'm allowed to talk about uh, physiognomy, which is uh, <laughs> a pretentious way of saying, you know, facial features. Right. Um, she is, um, she, her eyes are so far apart. They seem as if they're each in different hemispheres. Um, she, she reminds me a little bit of Bjork and she has that <clears throat> otherworldly quality because of, I think because of, of those eyes and because of their shape and their, their distance, um, and and you know she she has this sort of extraterrestrial quality um, that you know um, I I think that that you can you can look at her and think oh she's seeing things that I don't see the whatever she's seeing with those eyes is nothing that I could see and this movie is about somebody who is very much in her head who imagines who is able to visualize chessboards on the ceiling uh, and play out games in her mind and is never quite fully able to connect or to maintain intimacy with other people for a variety of reasons. I can't imagine a better piece of casting and I can't imagine a better way of taking what is basically a very familiar kind of go for it story with, with feminist overtones um, you know, it's it's and and turning it into something absolutely sublime and transcendent. And Scott Frank has got to get a lot of the credit and Walter T get a lot of the credit, too, because the book is phenomenal. And in some ways, the book is more fascinating. Uh oh, you've just done something to your microphone. You need to come uh, back. Well, what, fix fix up whatever mic you're talking into, uh, David. Meanwhile, let me Can you just hear me switch now? over. Yeah, yeah. Let me just switch over to Rebecca for a second, though. So, I, I should say we should say that she's been in a lot of movies already. Yeah. She's mm -hmm. been in The Witch, Split, Glass, Emma. Emma. I haven't seen any of those movies, but I get the feeling. Oh my Rebecca, God. Well, oh. Uh, but Rebe Rebecca, I'm getting a feeling that you've seen at least one of them. Yeah, I've seen both The Witch and Emma, and they were both fantastic. The Witch in particular, uh, it came out in 2015, so that was my first exposure to Anya Taylor-Joy, and she was quite young at the time. I want to say she was 12 or 13, and she just had this ghostly effervescence to her. You just could not stop looking at her, and she's so understated with her eye movements. I mean, she just has the the mastery of her facial features, as uh, David was saying, is very impressive. And she's also just very nuanced in her performance. Like, you don't know what she's thinking. She's an enigma. So I, I think, again, it was, as David said, she was a perfect cast for this, you know, sort of tortured genius who's driven to addiction through the nature of her own, you know, overactive brain and poor circumstance, and then having to kind of claw her way back out of that all while you know, being on a world stage for in a small world stage, you know, chess is not a huge community and the spotlight broadened to an extent where she, you know, at the end of the show, she's on the world stage and, and you still don't really know what she's thinking in her head. She's, she's just 
and I think she carries that over into many of her other performances. Even Emma, that you know, is kind of frothy and fun. She still has that sort of sly undertone to everything she's doing that you just can't quite put a finger on. And I think it makes her a really interesting actress. And she is so young, so it's going to be fantastic to see what lies ahead of her in her career. You know, really, she's a brilliant actress. And, you know, um, it's very interesting when you see The Witch, which is set in this, you know, 16th century Puritan uh, community. And the the other characters are have very kind of pinched, hard faces. And then she's sort of floating among them in touch with all these demonic spirits. And, uh, and, and you know, that was the first time she was, I think that, that quality of hers was set off. Emma, by the way, is, uh, I, I haven't seen everything this year because I haven't been, been writing as much, but uh, that's my favorite movie so far this year. Yeah, and performance is, I mean, if there's any doubt that, I mean, she she has a very very broad impact on you. Uh, she can she can give very kind of sizable performances, but she can also give an incredibly emotionally fine tuned performance. And the, these little flickers of emotion uh, can you know she can she can really kind of anatomize the emotions of her characters, you know, as the as they sort of flow across her face and give. A conviction to whatever she's doing and her Emma I mean I I felt the tragedy of that character it's a comedy it's a wonderful comedy but I also felt that tragedy yeah. of someone who who you know to use the uh the title of a movie loosely based on Emma clueless who sort of one day slaps her head and said I didn't see I didn't I didn't understand people, and now I do. That amazing transformation. I really, if you have not seen Emma, I really recommend it. Uh, and oh, I, uh, yeah, I and I and I think I think she's the real thing. I mean, I think she is as thrilling a young actress. I would say maybe her and Saoirse Ronan in a, in a very kind of different way. Both of them are these kind of otherworldly uh, actresses who really excite me more than. Uh, than just about anyone in the last 10 or 20 years even. All right, before we run out of time here, Rebecca, the other challenge for Scott Frank here is that, for example, I played chess a lot as a kid. I was stupendously bad at it. But I <laughs> sort of, I mean, like I'm I was glad really- I'm not alone. I was like really, really bad at it. Uh, and um, nonetheless, I kind of understand a little bit what's happening uh, on the board. Uh, and, but chess, which is actually in, uh, enjoying some of, something of a renaissance right now, in fact, because you can play it online, the pandemic chess. actually com. sort of- Yeah, exactly, there you go. Uh, I just saw a feature, I, th I think, on CBS this morning about a young woman who's kind of emerging as uh, a real-life Beth Harmon uh, chess star, but without the baggage. Um, but, you know, Rebecca, it's not axiomatic that you can put chess scenes uh, on a screen and have them be exciting to everybody, right. including people who don't know how to play chess. Somehow or other, I feel like he pulls this off, but I, I'm not quite sure I know how. Yeah. I mean, I think Pants said in our email thread that he wished that there was more of the chess scenes. And it's a real testament to a television show about chess that that's your feeling. And I felt the same way. I'm like, I would honestly be fine watching her play out a whole game right now. And I would never have expected that going into it. I think the way that they have it visualized, you know, part of her addiction is that it allows her to see the chess pieces moving on the ceiling. And that's what, you know, keeps her going back to, I don't know what they are, quaaludes or some sort of tranquilizer 
that she gets addicted to. And, and that illustration was so striking and, and to personify how it kind of looks in her head and how it feels, it made the game more dynamic. Um, it, it emphasized the cerebral nature of chess, this idea that you kind of got to look in a million different directions at once and suspend all these possible maneuvers in your head at one time to pick the best one. I just thought it was wonderfully filmed. And again, Anya Taylor-Joy was just masterful in her way of sort of externalizing what is a very internal game. And Wait, it was well, brilliant. Well, David, can I, can I you, add a little bit of, yeah, go a ahead. little bit of, uh, I guess a little bit of a qualification. I thought that the scenes, the chess scenes were beautiful. I love the score uh, that, that, you know, I love the way they were photographed. Um, I think in reading, in reading the book, you see, um, Walter Tevis is an extraordinary writer. He wrote The Hustler and, uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth were some oh. of the novels that most people have heard of, but he, um, he takes you inside the games emotionally. Um, we talk about cerebral, but in fact, there is so much emotion in the way mm. she plays out all these various scenarios in her head. So much is connected to, yep. to you know, uh, trying to anticipate the moves and the thoughts and, she takes and the feelings of the person across across from her. And you know, it really is. You know, I I do think that that the book should be read. First of all, it's a really wonderful novel. Second of all, it really should be read because those scenes are absolutely virtu virtuosic. I I would agree with that. I'm going to say something a little bit about Walter Tevis at uh, at, at the uh, end of the show today. Um, I'm guessing, by the way, that it's Librium a, a lot of the time that she's hooked on. To me, that's maybe the harder thing to pull off. I think the chess thing really works really well, and and I, the substance abuse thing works pretty well. Uh, although Rebecca, the reason that it's Librium, and we haven't really said this, is it's also a period piece. You know, it's sort of 50s, yeah. 60s. You know, everybody's yeah. smoking everywhere. I mean, there's it, yep. and the and fashion. That, yeah, go ahead. Like, I love the styling of the whole thing, down to the music, the shots of you know the interiors of department stores, the way her style sort of evolves with her growing up, and also the times. And you know, at the end, you've got her in this like Parisian. Oh, it's just delectable visually. I mean, I absolutely loved even the pills. I mean, they looked so inviting. Like I too would have an addiction to whatever that. What did you say? I've never heard of this drug in my that's life. Cool. Well, that's because you're yeah you you missed Libium, <laughs> but you didn't miss much. Missed All it. right, we got to go to a break. We're here with Rebecca Castellani, David Edelstein. Uh, we're going to come back, make some recommendations on the other side of this. We've been talking about Queen's Gambit, the Queen's Gambit, on Netflix. So many squares where you can go. All right. Well, we are back. Uh, let me just say a thank you or two, especially to Cat uh, Pastor, who's there in the studio getting us through all this stuff. Uh, and thanks to Jonathan McPants, who produced this episode. We will be back on Monday. We will do some kind of show. Jonathan and I are going to figure that out over the weekend. Uh, meanwhile, in the studio, in our in our non-studios, our remote studios, uh, we have Rebecca Castellani, who handles social media marketing and event planning for Quiet Corner Communications. David Edelstein is America's greatest living film critic. We're about to make some recommendations. I'm going to do a couple at the end if I have time, but I'm going to do one right now because it just sort of builds on something that we were just talking about. So uh, apropos of James Bond, um, you know, Bond songs are kind of an interesting uh, mm. subgenre in themselves. And I'm going to endorse, because this is a little controversial, 
uh, but it's true. Uh, I'm going to endorse not only the song You Only Live Twice, uh, which was actually lit- written by uh, Leslie Bercuse uh, and John Barry, but specifically the Nancy Sinatra version of it, which I regard as it's actually been covered a lot by jazz singers and stuff, but it is the definitive. In fact, it's been covered by Bjork. Uh, who oh, was he mentioned- says otherwise. He yeah. says otherwise. Uh, no, people get mad at you when you say that. Really? Yeah. Oh. But- but I mean, That's Nancy's score, that whole score. Yeah, but I mean, Nancy Sinatra's affect, it sounds like she's either taking Librium or some kind of affect suppressing <laughs> drug, you know. Yeah, but Librium sounds fun. It's absolutely <laughs> essential that you sound that way. You have to sound like you're not even that interested in the song that you're singing to try, you know, interested enough to try a little harder. I don't know. There's just, it's very important. Anyway, Rebecca, uh, I'll shut up now. What are your recommendations? <laughs> So my first one is a local loose leaf tea and coffee store that I've recently become obsessed with called Any Sips. It's uh, located in New Britain, but they've got fantastic online ordering. They've got some really, really interesting loose leaf tea blends. My favorite one right now is this sage lavender white tea that somehow simultaneously caffeinates me and calms me down, which is of vital importance during a week like this. So if you're looking for some good holiday gifts or just a nice warm beverage as we head into the winter months, Any Sips in New Britain, um, they've got a website. They're fantastic. Highly recommend. Also, great to support our small businesses this time of year and all times of year. Hmm. Um, And my second endorsement, I'm going to disclaimer here and say that we are doing this show on our Big Wheel podcast, which is my uh, collaboration with Carolyn Payne and Teresa Kramer, fellow nostrils. However, I would be endorsing this even if we weren't doing it. And that is HBO's The Undoing. It stars Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant, and it's really good. Donald Sutherland's in it. It's mysterious. It's beautifully filmed. David E. Kelly, who uh, was the producer of Big Little Lies, is behind the helm. And it's a great mystery. It's only six episodes, so if you're looking for something to sink your teeth into, I am highly in, uh, highly recommended and very much enjoying The Undoing on HBO. All right. And so catch up uh, with it on Big Little Podcast as well. Uh, all right. So, uh, David Edelstein, what have you got for us? Uh, well, I have two things. Um, <clears throat> I had hoped to talk today about the Great British yeah. Baking Show or the Great British Bake Off. <laughs> next time, David. We'll get them next time. Yeah, we'll get them next time. Um, it is it is a uh, an oasis of sanity, and <laughs> uh, in in this in this horrible year, it's um, it's a competition show, and in fact, baking requires a great deal of rigor, and the. Um, the, the judges, uh, Paul and Prue, Paul Hollywood is, of course, a great authority on bread, um, are, you know, extremely demanding. And yet it has a very kind of campy and very warm tone that is maintained, a very sort of human tone that as these people are doing these things and there are amazing kitchen disasters that happen uh, in the course of them, uh, there's, there's this sense of, oh, well, you tried, mate. You know, it just... You know, it was underbaked. It was uh, soggy bottom, but it. But you know, you're still a great baker, <clears throat> and so um, I, I recommend it uh, unreservedly. <clears throat> One more, I'm going to recommend very highly the book "True Crimes and Misdemeanors: The Investigation of Donald Trump" by yeah. Jeffrey Tubin. Uh, regardless of what uh, you know, stupid mistakes Jeffrey Tubin did, he is a first-rate journalist legal journalist and writes with so much insight and so, and so much wit and, and understanding of the, the Robert Mueller investigation, what went right and what went deeply wrong, that I think 
the book is an important way to understand the sorts of legal battles that we're going to be seeing in the next uh, two or three weeks. Uh, I hope uh, this, I know this is a can of worms. I just, I, I hope Jeffrey Tubin, uh, you know, comes back to the New Yorker, CNN. There's a lot to talk about there, but I can tell you that this is a first-rate book. All right. So I'm going to um, endorse actually the work of Walter Tevis. I read Queen's Gambit when it came out in 1983. Like a lot of people, I kind of just sat down and read it until I was done reading. I mean, it was it's not a book that you put down uh, very easily. Uh, and uh, I would actually recommend among his non movie inspiring books, uh, the book Mockingbird, which takes place in a future where everybody is illiterate. Uh, and uh, at least I haven't read a Tevis book in a while, but I recall that is also pretty memorable. I just memorable. read Mockingbird. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's I, I think amazing. I, I think it works. So well. I'm glad to hear that. Actually, uh, I'll also just do a quick uh, musical recommendation. I don't know whether this uh, group is on your radar screen, uh, uh, Rebecca, and it's one of those groups that's really just a person. Uh, the group is This Is the Kit, it, which is the alias of Paris-based wow. uh, British musician Kate Stables. Uh, her early stuff is kind of amazing and disturbing. Uh, she's oh. got a new album out called Off, Off, On, which I think is a little bit more intended for a mass audience. Although I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily discourage you from going back to some of the quirkiest i mean she has like a song called riddled with ticks uh, earlier in her career which (laughs) give you an idea of like where her thoughts go but but anyway this is the kit and yeah check out the new album because it's a little bit more mainstream uh, i think uh, than some of the other stuff all right the massive thanks to see they have chemistry we're going to keep putting them together (laughs) rebecca castellani handles social media marketing event planning for quiet corner communications david edelstein is america's greatest living film critic we'll be back monday thank you for listening today to said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.